right, amen. Let's open our Bibles to uh, John chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 through 12 for you this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in a pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before he was a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they went to him, or they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. That is the word of the Lord. So this morning, great story. One of my favorites in the Bible. We read about a man who, whose suffering was specifically given to him so that others may see the, the works of God displayed in his life. To me, I think that's a powerful thing, especially for us to consider in the light of our own sufferings and trials. Um, I think it's a story that really gets our attention because in this story, we see the sovereignty of God. Or rather, put a different way, we see the sovereign will of God And if it's sovereign, then we see it being forcefully and explicitly worked out in a person's life. Now, we we go around and we talk about the sovereignty of God, but how many of us really understand what that means and the implications of worshiping a sovereign God? Many in this world don't think that that's the way God does things, but it would be hard to explain this passage and explain how God uh, did this in this person's life. In fact, if we are careful to pay attention to the Bible, the Bible consistently teaches us that God has a determined will. He has a determined will that cannot and will not be broken. I could have used plenty of passages, but I chose this one out of Isaiah 46 just to give you an example. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. This is what it says about God's will. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me. Listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Church, that's the God that we worship. That is the sovereign God of the Bible. You see, for many, the thought that there is a sovereign God brings fear into their hearts. They worry about like, wait, wait a second. You mean I'm, I'm not completely in charge of my life? I, I don't have control of everything that happens? Some even shake their fists at God, basically claim that it's not fair. Or who do you think you are? But we see how God answers back to those kind of responses. He answers back with resounding clarity. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's set really clear by God. You see, but for believers, seeing God in his true light doesn't mean that it has to be a fearful thing for us. For believers, there are tremendous blessings to embracing the sovereignty of God over our lives. That is the sermon summary for today. It's wonderful to worship a God who is in control of everything. Why? Because we do not have to be. It's a good thing because we cannot be. So I want us to consider the tremendous blessings there are in embracing and being secure and entrusting in a sovereign God. From our passage we're going to look at a couple of reasons why we should celebrate God's sovereignty. But first, before we get to that, let's talk about what's happening in this passage. There, there are some difficult things about this passage. Um, number one, it's vague. Very, very vague. And what I mean by it being vague is that we are not given a time period as to all, when all this is occurring. And also, we're not given a location to where Jesus and his disciples are traveling to. We are also not given specific names. Like we are just told that a man, that Jesus saw a man who was born blind. His name was not even included in in the whole story. Uh, The disciples ask a question. It says in general, the disciples asked this question. It doesn't say who of the disciples asked the question. The only name obviously that's there is the name of Christ. He is the one, the central figure uh, of the story. Um, But we must understand that John's, Goal is not trying to give us a, a, a basically everything that happened in Jesus' ministry kind of, kind of book here. Uh, none of the Gospels do that. Uh, basically, their goal is to share the life of Christ to help us to understand that he is the Son of God and that he is the Savior of the world. John even admits in, in this Gospel, in, in John chapter 20, he says, And I'm going to basically rephrase this in my own language. But he basically says, hey, listen, look, I didn't write everything down that Jesus did. Didn't write everything down. But what I wrote down is going to point you to the fact that he is the son of God and that he is the savior of the world. And that's the important thing here. So with with the vagueness, understanding that helps us to understand the vagueness. Uh, The real purpose of the story was not who, when, how, where, but it was, let's look at Christ and see who he truly is as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world. 
Now, the story starts with Jesus passing by a man that he saw. Hold on to that thought because that's very important. This man that Jesus saw was blind, and it seemed like it was common knowledge that he was blind. Why? Because everybody understood, understood his story. So it seemed like it was common knowledge that he had been born blind because after seeing him, the disciples asked Jesus directly, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, we can't jump to the conclusion just because someone is blind, that it doesn't mean, all right, we can't jump to the conclusion that it means that someone was born blind. They had to have some kind of inside information to know that he was born blind. So it was common knowledge about this man uh, and his condition. And we know from our text that this man's vocation was actually to sit and to beg. And we see that in verse 8. We see that everybody recognized him as the one who sat and begged. Why? Because obviously he was blind and could not do anything. So that's probably what he was doing when Jesus saw him. Now, the initial dialogue, talking about vagueness, the initial dialogue between Jesus and this man is not available to us. Um, We only see Jesus responding to the question of the disciples who asked him, why was this man born blind? Now, when they asked that question, there were some issues with that question because they only assumed he was born that way for two reasons. One, because he was at fault, or two, his parents were at fault. One or another. Isn't that fitting when you see something wrong with a person to blame the parents? I thought, I thought that was pretty funny when I saw that. This has to be his fault or his parents' fault. But those are the two reasons uh, that are given. And it makes sense because many first century Jews believe that any kind of temporary misfortunes were God's punishment for sins. So and, and when I speak about temporary, I mean things on this side of uh, things that happen here and now. So anything that anybody was suffering from, somebody would look at that and say, oh, what did you do wrong? You must have done something wrong because God has punished you for something. That's why you have this ailment. And when we talk about uh, congenital afflictions, the explanation seemed to be that either this man who was born blind, either he did something wrong in the womb, or this sin was the cause of something his parents did, and basically they because of their actions, they afflicted their son with this sin. Now, that's, that's the belief that is being held here by the disciples as they ask this question, not only by them, but by, by many in that time period. It, I guess it was a great explanation to understanding why someone was born with an ailment, why someone was born with, with a deficiency, so to speak. They have to explain it in their heads, and that was the best way they could do it, either that person did something in the womb or the parents did something where God punished a child um, instead of just the parents. But Jesus reveals that his illness was not due to either of their sins. But listen to this. In speaking of sovereignty, listen. This illness was not due to either of their sins, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason for his blindness. We see that in John 9, verse 3. 
I think that's very powerful, and that's something that we kind of have to bookmark, underline, place our finger on, hold on to that thought as the sermon continues. Because that shows us everything about the power and might and sovereignty of God. And then we see that Jesus wasted no time. In fact, he spoke of his ur- the urgency of his ministry. Listen to what he said in verses 4 and 5. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See, Jesus knew that he would be going to the cross. That's what he's speaking of here. And reflecting between day and night, he's, he's talking about the period of time, the, the night would be with him going to the cross, going to the crucifixion. Um, so he's speaking of that. He sees that. It's in, his, it's in his, his vision. He knows it is coming. But what he's saying is that while he still has time before the cross, that he would be doing the works of God. And then after saying that, the Bible says that Jesus, that he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. With the saliva. And then he anointed, let me stop there. Isn't it good that that man was blind and couldn't see what Jesus was doing? How many of us would have reacted and said, I don't think so, if we could actually see what was going on? So he made this mud and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool." And when he came back, he came back seeing. That's what we see in verse 7. Now, in speaking about the whole saliva and and, and the dirt, which made mud, and he put it on his eyes, there's no explanation as to why Jesus used mud to perform this miracle. A lot of people, or there are some, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are some think that it points to something even deeper. I happen to agree with those who say that Jesus used the mud on the man's eyes and asked him to go wash for the simple fact that the man would have a chance to display his faith by obeying Christ. I think it was as simple as that. I put this mud on you. I'm giving you this direction to go and wash. Are you going to trust in what I'm saying and who I am to go and wash and expect something wonderful to happen? I think exactly, that's exactly what was going on. So the culmination of the story is that this man who was born blind, he met Jesus, he obeyed Jesus, and he was healed by Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful story? Listen, listen very carefully. I'll say it again and and. Let's see if we can pick up on this. This is the culmination of of the man's story. He was blind and he met Jesus. He obeyed Jesus. And he was healed by Jesus. Who does that remind you of? If you're a Christian in here, you better be pointing at yourself. He was blind and now, now he could see. What a wonderful reminder of what God has done in our lives. And that's where we get to the sovereignty of God. And how wonderful this passage is in displaying that. You see, this 
passage shows us some wonderful things about his sovereignty. And these wonderful things, I'm telling you, they give us hope. And these wonderful things about his sovereignty should help us to trust in him more, knowing that we serve a God like him. The first sign that we see of his sovereignty is how the man was born blind. That's it, how he was born blind. How he was born blind and how that was an analogy of the man's natural sinful state and his spiritual blindness to God. And then we see Jesus do something with that and what he does with that shows us his divine power. See, the doctrine of original sin says that there is a universal sinfulness of the whole human race. That no one escapes it. No one is born without sin, without fault, without stain. No one comes into this world perfect. I know that's bad news because I know we hold our babies in our hands and they're so cute and they just don't know what they're doing. But we all start off sinful. All of us. That is the doctrine of original sin. We get our sinfulness from Adam and Eve. Their sinfulness was transmitted to, to us, to all of creation. When they fell, we fell with them. If you want to read more about that, read Romans chapters 1 through 3. Read all of Romans, if you would. But read Romans 1 through 3, and it gives a wonderful explanation of the issue of sin. And the Bible tells us that since all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, all deserve death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That, those two things are also found in the book of Romans. But the Bible also says that in his sovereignty, God has provided a way for sinful man to be redeemed from the wages of sin through faith in his son. See, we are spiritually blind from birth. And only faith in Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world can bring true healing to us. There is nothing else. But you know what God does? Instead of putting mud on a sinner's eyes and telling him to go and wash, the Lord changes his heart. He puts his word in his heart. And the Lord leads him to repentance. That's what the Lord has done with us. And it's the same process. It looks the same as the man who was born blind. Jesus is using that as an illustration. That's why the whole thing was to go and wash. Well, we are washed by the word. We are made clean by his spirit. We are changed because God places his word in our hearts. We are given a new heart to worship him with. This man is literally the, a picture, or figuratively I should say, figuratively a picture of us. Jesus shows us 
And he shows us his sovereignty in that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the Gospel of of John proclaimed in chapter 1. Now we can't miss that because to me that's the most important thing. Because if 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 we're born in sin and we have no hope, then who is going to help us? The only one who can help us is sovereign God. He's the only one who can help us. He's the only one who can get us out of our predicament. And in order for him to do that, he must have given us grace. And that's exactly what he did. Even though we were sinful and we deserved death, he gave us life. Not that we worked for it, not that we did anything for it, just because he was merciful and gracious. Now, There are two other signs that I saw, the second sign of his sovereignty in this passage goes back to the fact that this man who was born blind, obviously he could not see Christ, but Christ saw him. To me, that's really important when we talk about God's sovereignty. This blind man could not see Christ, but Christ could see him. See, as a, first of all, I think I have two good examples here. Number one, as I get older, I'm needing more, like right now, that's a little blurry. Wearing them and then wearing these glasses and then taking them off, I have, my eyes have to adjust. Very frustrating getting older and older and having to deal with the lack of, you know, good eyesight. And then I have glycoma on top of it, so I have to, do these drops, I have to do all this other stuff, I have to watch my eyesight, I have to go to the doctor regularly. It, it just, it's just a pain. So I think we can all relate to the fact of not being able to see as good as we used to. But also, there's another example as a parent that I could use here, and I think all of us can understand the, the terrifying experience of, of losing a child. And how when you cannot see your child, if you're out in public, you cannot see your child, you turn around and you look and and that child is gone. They step out of your line of sight for some reason or another. The very first thing that happens is you have this this feeling, this, this pit in your stomach. Your stomach begins to hurt because you do not know where they're at. You start, your mind starts to wonder. You don't know maybe who has them. You start to panic because you're not in control of the situation. You can't be everywhere at one time. Now, it's bound to happen to all of us. At one point or another, as parents, we take our, even playing in the front yard. Right now, we're all going through uh, hearing about this six-year-old girl who was kidnapped out of her front yard after getting off of a school bus. It happened that quick. They recovered her body. How horrible that is for a family to have to go through that. But when we lose sight of our kids, that jumps into our minds sometimes. And we don't ever get rid of that. Because what happens when they get older and they move away? What are we doing as parents? Still worried about them in one way or another. It may not be the same thing that we did when they were smaller. Well, we know they could take care of themselves, but we still worry about them because they're out of our sight. Well, let me reassure you, 
that does not happen to God. Think about how amazing that statement is, though. Most of us in here have one, two, four, maybe five at the most kids. Think of how many children God has. He does not lose sight of one. It's a wonderful picture of his sovereignty. God does not know what it's like to not know where his children are, to not be able to see them. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. Therefore, he constantly knows what's going on in our lives. He knows where we're at at all times. Listen to the Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known, and, and known me. You know where, when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. That is true of the Lord every single day, 24-7. So when we look at this story and we see this occurrence where Jesus meets a man or he sees a man who's born blind, this wasn't like a chance, uh, it, just, it just happened. Jesus knew who he was and where he was. In other words, Jesus sought him out to heal him for the purpose of God's work being displayed in him. See, since man is sinful and lost from birth, we cannot see God. Even worse, in that state, and I'm talking about in the sinful state, even worse is that we are not only blind and we cannot see God, but even when he is revealed to us, we still do not see God as God. I like what Matthew Henry says here about this whole thing and this man being born blind. Listen to what he says. It's really, it's really profound. He says, he that is blind has no enjoyment of light, but he that is born blind has no idea of it. That's us. We're born in sin. We not only, not only have we not seen God, we have no idea of God and who he truly is. And we don't learn that until his word is preached to us, taught to us, and he changes our hearts. You know, the funny thing about being lost and I know a lot of guys in here won't admit that they've ever been lost. But the funny thing about being lost is that if you don't know you're lost, there's no fear. There's no urgency. See, I'm hardly lost because I just don't know it. I'm just driving around. Even if someone asks me, are you lost? I'm just cruising. The fact is, is that once we start to worry, once we start to have a little bit of fear, not as bad as it used to be whenever you didn't have all these electronics to just take you somewhere. But if you were lost and you realized it, then that's a different feeling. That's like, 
I remember when I came to the Lord, when I saw him for the first time for who he was, I didn't realize I was lost until I saw it. Then I started thinking like, wow, I was lost. I really was lost. But thank God he saved me. See, although we are blind to Christ, and we have to be really thinking about what I'm about to say. Because it's, an, it's a tremendous blessing. And this is one of the comforts of worship being a sovereign God. Although we are blind to him, he searches us out. And he leads us to everlasting life. And if that were not enough, after we belong to him, we are never out of his sight. And even more, as our intercessor, we can see Christ right now. He knows our innermost anxieties and worries, and he already has an answer for them. What a sovereign and wonderful God that we worship. God always knows our condition and always provides for our needs. Now, the third thing. The third sign of the Lord's sovereignty is how the man who was born blind, uh, or excuse me, was how the man was born blind, not because of punishment from sin, but to bring glory to God in his predicament. I want us to really think about that for a second. He is not the only example we have of this in the Bible. Tremendous when you start looking through the Bible and you start seeing how a lot of these men and women, children were used in that same way. But just to give you some examples, here, what about Joseph? His situation was the same way as this man who was born blind. See, at the end of his life, Joseph, we, we know the story, he was sold into slavery you know, he, he ends up suffering in, in prison. Uh, God rescues him from that situation, puts him in charge, second in charge in all of Egypt. Lifts him up to this really high position. But yet at the same time, Joseph has to live in anguish of what really happened to him and how his brothers sold him into slavery and he can't see his family. They come and he meets with them. And we understand and we know the story. There's reconciliation there. Everything happens. But Joseph, looking back at his life, he saw the real reason of his suffering. He said this, as for you, telling his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the same thing. His brothers meant to harm him, but God used that suffering, used that trial in Joseph's life to display his works. Then we have Job. We understand the, the story of Job. The very beginning, Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where, where the, the enemy tells God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. And then we know what happened to Job after that. 
What about Paul? You see, Paul's a little tricky because we, we think, well, Paul deserved what he got because he was going around and persecuting the church and, and, and overseeing the deaths of Christians. But that's not what, what God said. Of course, we all deserve what we get, but listen to what, what, what God says about Paul. He says, for I will show him, this is after he called him, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What about the best example of all? The man who, the man, the God who performed this miracle, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, for our sake, this is what the Bible says about Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, Jesus, made him to be sin, or excuse me, for he, as in God, made him, as in Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Same thing. All four examples, same thing. See, the truth is that all men suffer due to sin. I, I don't want to get away from that. We have to understand that. That's the reason why we suffer. We suffer because of the consequence of sin. We cannot separate our suffering from sin. That's why when we get to heaven, we are promised that we are not going to suffer. Why? Because there is no sin. They are connected together. But listen to this very carefully. Even though all men suffer due to sin, not all of our suffering is punishment for sin. And that's exactly what we have in this case with the man who was born blind. In many occasions, we suffer trials of various kinds so that the works of God may be shown in us. Now, we have to be able to distinguish between the two. Obviously, there is consequences for what we do. And God does not save us from those things. Sometimes we do foolish things, and it's easy to point out, I'm suffering because I'm doing foolish and ungodly things. Now, if we're trying to basically mask those as suffering for trials, not going to happen. But there are occasions where we do suffer trials so that God can be glorified in them. And that's the reason why we do. That's the reason why we're suffering. See, what we have to understand is that God in his sovereignty he orchestrates these trials in our lives. It, it's, not, it's not the enemy. When it comes to this situation here, there's no one else to identify as the cause. God is sovereign if you are going through it either brought it to you or he let it happen to you one way or another he's still in control of it and we try to give credit to all these other things as to why we are suffering but we must understand that we live under we worship 
a sovereign God. This was Matthew Henry, another wonderful quote from him. God has sovereignty over all his creatures and an exclusive right in them and may make them serviceable to his glory in such a way as he thinks fit in doing or suffering. And if God be glorified either by us or in us, we are not made in vain. Love it. You know what this really gives me? I hope it gives you as well. When I, when I study the sovereignty of God and I, I'm, a, you know, I'm given the privilege to preach on it or teach on it, it's very humbling for one. Very humbling. But you know what? I always walk out of that sermon or, or that Bible study with the sense of greater purpose. Like I understand. It's, it's like clear. We lose that sense of purpose every single day. We're so nearsighted. We, we think when we're in the moment, we're nearsighted. We need the word of God to remind us it is not about here and now. It's not about us. Our real purpose goes beyond that. And no matter what happens to us, good, bad, or ugly, we have to have the right perspective in that we are going to bring God the glory in it. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't agree with it, we can all come to that conclusion as Christians that the purpose of what we are going through is to bring God glory. So, yes, we must know that there is a divine purpose that is that are driving everything. But specifically, there is a divine purpose that, that is driving our misfortunes. Either we are being disciplined for our sins. That we must repent from. So that we can worship him. Or we are going through trials so that the work of God may be seen in us. That's basically it. We who are in Christ, when we come upon both of those situations, the result is that the Lord gets the glory. I want to leave you with one more passage. I think this sums up everything well, and it gives us, I, I can't say it better than this, and it gives us a real um, conclusion to this sermon as to the sovereignty of God and the purpose of why we go through things and why everything happens. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 20. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, listen to this, through him and for him. That includes you and I, right? If we have a good understanding of what that means, then we understand why we go through what we go through. and We understand why everything happens. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. You understand that? Do you see where we fall, we, we, we fall in line? 
He is before all things. That means he's even before our lives. He is before our wants. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let us pray.